1982, I was familiarizing myself with the museum's collection of Blitz photographs. My name is Hilary Roberts, and I am Senior Curator of Photography at Imperial War Museums. And I came across a selection of gorgeous 10 by 8 prints taken in London during the Blitz by somebody called Lee Miller, who at that point I thought was a man. And of course, they remained in my mind uh, for quite some time because they were interesting, unusual, different from the many thousands of other Blitz photographs. And they were also unusual because they had a name attached to them and many of these photographs actually didn't. Hello there and welcome back to the Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain podcast. I'm Amy Bouhazen and the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives. In this episode, I'm talking with Hilary about the forces at play when Lee got to Britain and started to work and how hard it was to get photographic materials at the time. I started out by asking Hilary what her favourite image was from the book that this podcast accompanies. I think my possible all-time favourite is the shot of solarised corsetry that she took, which employed the solarisation technique that she developed and applied along with Man Ray before the war to real artistic effect to make glamorous what is perhaps the least glamorous piece of women's clothing to produce an interesting photograph which in not only conveys the reality of the clothing itself but also makes the woman who is modeling it look really attractive. Solarization technique, as Man Ray named it, was a method of printing photographs called the Sabatier effect that was rediscovered by Lee whilst working in the darkroom on some of Man Ray's prints in Paris. Lee's career up until working for British Vogue was really interesting. She'd been a model in America before branching out as a photographer in her own right, unusually for a woman at the time setting up her own photography studio in both Paris and New York. Lee arrived into the UK just on the eve of the war, but despite her illustrious career, she was prevented from working at the beginning due to being American. She wrote to her brother John complaining, I'm also curfewed at midnight and I can't own a seaplane, bicycle or howitzer. Go away for the weekend, sleep out, even accidentally. Speak my piece, roll a bandage, ship my property home or fly a kite. The immigration service would have been concerned about whether Lee was able to support herself without making demands on British resources or competing with the British labour force. And you have to remember at that point in time, unemployment was still a significant factor after the Great Depression. Lee's experience would have been rather similar to our own experience, I think, uh, during the pandemic in, in 2020, where regulations were constantly being issued and updated and changed. So defence regulations covered everything. Blackout, air raid procedures, food rationing are the best remembered ones today. But other examples were the silencing of church bells. And the key was the fear 
of enemies of the state gaining a foothold in Britain and weakening it from inside. America, of course, in the First World War, had been neutral for much of the time, was neutral still. But the British also remembered that America in the First World War had had a sizable lobby in favour of Germany, the Hearst Press, for example. The memories in this sort of situation are long. So Americans would have, by virtue of their neutrality, not been eligible for the wartime effort. So Lee would have been exempt, for example, from the introduction of conscription for British women. But she would have been scrutinised. Despite this scrutiny, she soon found employment as a freelancer at British Vogue. The work permit, I have no precise date for, but uh, there are references to it in correspondence within Vogue, British Vogue. My feeling is that it came through at the end of 1939 or very early 1940. And it's pretty close to the point that she becomes a salaried member of the Vogue team. Lee would be joining British Vogue at a precipitous time, and not only because of the war. The publication's owner, Condé Nast, was himself in a state of crisis. Lee later wrote that he had asked her just after she arrived in Britain to run Vogue's London studio. Condé Nast, of course, was at this point, he was very ill. He was fighting to put his stable of magazines back on a stable financial basis because he had lost so much money during the great financial crash. He was working to do that at the expense of his health. And it was at this point, I believe, that he started a roots and branch review of Vogue, whether with or without the agreement of his senior staff. And so I understand that at the time of his death, he had worked his way through a sizable number of his employees at Vogue, producing appraisals of them. You have the appraisal that Ayaga produced for him on Lee, I believe. It's a very interesting insight into how Vogue actually saw Lee's photography. But the one thing I remember is also how Condé Nast's kindness to Lee comes through in some of his final letters to her in the archive, how valued she was and how important her contribution was to him personally as to well as Vogue in general. As well as the problems Condé Nast's publication empire was facing, the fact that British Vogue was now operating in a wartime economy brought problems of its own. There were two primary sources of wood pulp for Britain in the early stages of the war. One was Norway and the other was Canada. And when Germany occupied Norway, the nearest source of wood pulp for Britain dried up making Britain entirely dependent on Canada for its supplies. Getting supplies of wood pulp across the Atlantic at a time when U-boats were sinking unprecedented numbers of merchant ships and at a time when pressure on munition supplies and troop numbers 
were the priority. It meant that wood pulp was very far down the list of priorities when it came to supplies. And so recycling paper, really strict economy in the use of paper, all became far more important than it ever had been before. In 1942, paper supplies came under the control of the Ministry of Production, at which point it became illegal to throw away or burn paper. You could you could be prosecuted and end up potentially in prison. Less paper brought down advertising revenue, massively squeezing British folks' profit margins. However, one of the ways it could keep itself afloat was by carrying advertising for the government. They would get paid for carrying government advertising, but... Their decision on editorial content was theirs alone. But the readership wanted to read this kind of stuff and the government wanted to get it out there. So it was, if you like, a willing collaboration between all parties. The stories that Vogue commissioned were designed to tell women what to expect and celebrate their achievements. Lee did that in pictures at this point in time, Lee was not writing her own articles to accompany her uh, photo essays. She was accompanied by a writer, a journalist from Vogue, who would produce the text which accompanied Lee's pictures. And this is the reason why sometimes there is a strange mismatch between the nature of the photographs, and the text. Just how big a role photography played in getting the government's message out there is a difficult question to answer. So would you say it was important? There was a very fascinating conversation some years ago between one of the few surviving members of the photograph division of the Ministry of Information and a researcher asking whether the Ministry of Information evaluated the impact and the popularity of the photographs. And she said that under wartime conditions, the pressures on them were so great that they really didn't have the chance to do that. In terms of measuring the effectiveness, it would have been whether the desired result overall was produced. If it wasn't, where did the problem lie and what could they do to improve matters? One particular example was a drive to improve recruitment to the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS. This was the women's branch of the army, which needed the most recruits and tended to get the least for a whole variety of reasons. And stories carried by British Vogue and other magazines did manage to publicise that campaign. But of course, the magazines weren't the only factor in reversing the trend and and improving recruitment to the ATS. So it's very hard to say British Vogue achieved this through its content. So if paper pulp was scarce as part of photography paper, did British Vogue have trouble in accessing other photography materials? To understand a little bit more about the manufacturing requirements of black and white film, it's worthwhile understanding how film was made up and its component parts. And in fact, it's probably simplest if you can imagine a sandwich, a three-layer sandwich. On the base of this sandwich is a support medium. 
which would be some form of plastic acetate. Various bases were used, cellulose acetate, uh, cellulose nitrate, cellulose diacetate. All of them had issues. Cellulose nitrate, for example, was made up of the main ingredients of gunpowder and was therefore quite a dangerous material to handle. Cellulose diacetate was prone to degrading and giving off a strong smell of vinegar. On the top of the sandwich was the light-sensitive emulsion, which was made up of silver nitrate, a compound which uh, darkens when it's exposed to light. The challenge is that those two layers somehow needed to be stuck together, and neither of them were particularly attracted to each other. And so in the middle of the sandwich was a layer of gelatine, which bonded with both the cellulose base and the light-sensitive emulsion on the top. Gelatine is a hygroscopic material, which means it acts a little bit like a, a sponge, and so it can expand or contract depending on the amount of moisture in the air. And that enables the base layer and the light-sensitive emulsion to sit comfortably alongside each other and not essentially fall to pieces. So when you were making black and white roll film, or indeed a black and white printing paper, those were the layers of the materials that you needed to incorporate. And the speed of the film, the quality of the film, or the paper was determined by the mix that went into the light sensitive emulsion. So in wartime Britain, there were really only two suppliers of photographic materials. That was Ilford, a British firm which had been established for many years, and Kodak. Uh, Kodak, of course, was an American firm, but it had a big factory in Harrow. Ilford were great producers of flash bulbs, uh, medium format camera film. They developed what would become multigrade printing paper during the war as part of the support for the Air Force who wanted materials which would support really high quality aerial reconnaissance photography. Both suppliers under wartime regulations had to give the government priority on their supplies. So the materials that they used to make film and photographic paper, a certain amount of material being stockpiled by Ilford before the war, and they made very good use of those supplies. Gelatine could be made from bones on site. In Kodak's case, there were supplies from overseas, United States, but again, this was subject to shipping being available to bring it across. Government had priority on what you have to say was a reduced supply. Commercial activity, certainly press photography, and magazine photography came second. It has to be remembered that actually the majority of our understanding of what life was like in wartime Britain today derives from the work of press photographers, many of whom 
were not identified and still remain anonymous, but nevertheless produced absolutely superb images using very basic camera equipment. There are some interesting accounts of working in the Ilford and Kodak factories in Britain. The Kodak factory, for example, had an anti-aircraft battery on its roof, which shook the entire building whenever they opened fire during the Blitz. At Ilford, the main water tanks supplying the industrial plant had refugee goldfish in it. Some A bombed-out member of staff had rescued his goldfish from the wreck of his home, had nowhere else to uh, put the goldfish, and so decanted them into the water tanks at the Ilford family, where they lived and bred for the rest of the war, quite happily, apparently. Colour photography is rather a separate beast. At the start of the Second World War, there were essentially two manufacturers of viable colour transparency process. That was Agfa of Germany and Kodak. Ilford was in the early stages of trying to develop a British version of colour film, but that was stopped by the government as being low priority and a waste of chemicals and materials which were needed elsewhere. So Britain in the Second World War had no domestically manufactured supplies of colour film. Colour processing could rarely be done successfully in an independent darkroom. The process was too complex. It was the normal procedure for anybody taking colour photographs to send their films to Kodak for processing and turnaround. That was certainly the case with British military photography, colour photography, which increased from 1942 onwards, and it was certainly the case for Vogue. The challenge which Vogue also had when it came to colour photography was not only just processing the photographs themselves, but also reproducing them within the pages of the magazine. It was expensive. The question really was how much of a priority on resources should colour have? And where there was a really vital cover story or feature, yes, colour would be used, but it was used sparingly and its use reflected the vagaries of wartime supplies. It's kind of typical of Lee that she rose to the challenge of shooting some colour for Vogue in those times. She had around 15 colour images published, more if you include the pattern and knitting books and leaflets where her work was used. Of course, film stock and photography paper wasn't the only thing affected by these wartime shortages. Most aspects of the economy were, in some way, including the fashion that Lee was reporting on. For example, Norman Hartnell had extra considerations to make when he was designing the uniforms for British women. He definitely had to take account of health and safety regulations. He had to take account of practicalities. Uh, For example, women serving in the army, if they were required to wear khaki like the men, the quality of the material had to be kinder to women's skin because women's skin was far more sensitive and was inclined to come really chafed and sore 
if they simply adapted the material from the men's uniforms. So who had sign-off on these kind of uniform designs and fashion outfits? I can imagine a lineup of Churchill lookalikes sitting there looking at women's clothes. The Board of Trade was responsible for designs, patents, advising the government on producing goods for sale, trade, finance, economy, retail, all this sort of thing. But other bodies, the Ministry of Works, the Armed Forces, even the trades unions and the bodies which were responsible for employer-employee relations, all of these had input to these sorts of issues. The amazing thing is that the whole thing functioned as efficiently as it actually did and didn't get bogged down in bureaucracy. You know, when you try to reconstruct it today, it's really quite bewildering. I find it so confusing understanding these fashion regulations that they had. It's almost as bad as getting my head round the constantly changing COVID-19 restrictions at the moment. The regulations they had in wartime life were constantly changing too, in particularly the rules of rationings and individual clothing coupons allowances. They seem really complex. What you could and couldn't do with it was so complicated that the stationery office had to produce an annual clothing quiz every year so that people could make sure that they understood all the regulations on how to use their clothing coupons. I mean, you know, these things, again, lots of regulations, lots of changes, lots of sometimes petty, small-scale things, sometimes major things. Keeping on top of it and keeping a family clothed. You know, imagine you are a, a mother with five or six children to look after. I mean, it's absolute nightmare. So the clothing quiz by HMSO was published every year to make sure that people <laughs> were suitably equipped to use their clothing coupons. Lee Miller herself didn't escape the state's bureaucracy, and in 2010, we discovered that deep in MI5's archives, there was a file dedicated to my grandmother, which none of us knew of. It had been opened during the war on a tip-off from somebody at British Vogue who had stated that Lee had been receiving communist-sympathising publications. However, what tipped the balance, and probably made them open the file, was the company that she and her partner Roland Penrose, my grandfather, kept at the time. Roland through his association with sort of communists who fought in the Spanish Civil War, was deemed a potential security risk. But they both knew a guy called Wilfred McCartney. Wilfred McCartney had served in the British Army during the First World War, during which time he had been captured by the Germans and apparently escaped. But in 1926, he went to prison because he smashed a jeweller's shop window in London. He touted stories of his alleged life as a secret service agent. He was eventually convicted under the Official Secrets Act. His convictions included attempting to obtain information on the Royal Air Force collecting information relating to the mechanised force of the His Majesty's Army. And he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Pretty much as soon as he got out in December 1936, McCartney went to Spain to fight as part of the 
British battalion of the independent brigades in the Spanish Civil War. This would be the time when Roland would have encountered him. And through Roland, I suspect, Lee would also have got to know him. That was one tip. Another tip was, I have been told by a friend on the staff of Vogue magazine that Lee Miller is a very strong communist. Goodness knows who that might be. It has to be said, there was an enormous amount of gossip at this time. People were constantly looking for spies and they were also settling grudges. But that was the launch of the surveillance. Of course, Picasso, a close friend of Roland and Lee, had joined the Communist Party late on in the Second World War. And Picasso, of course, actually came to visit Lee and Roland and was slated to actually address the British Communist Party. And I think at this point, Lee's file would have been taken off the shelf and looked at again, and that might explain the last entry in it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain. And thank you so much to Hilary for giving us these insights into some of the challenges faced in World War II. Just before we finished, I managed to ask her a couple more questions. First up, who was her favourite wartime British designer? I suppose my favourite British designer during the Second World War has to be Norman Hartnell for the sheer variety of what he achieved in in wartime. So he not only continued to produce a degree of couture fashion, but he also brought those values to the utility clothing range and also designed many of the uniforms for the women's branches of the armed services and also costumes for film stage performances as well but in every case making women look wonderful despite very very difficult circumstances and what is your favorite all-time image by lee miller picking one image If I have to, I have to go for her portrait of a French woman accused of collaboration at Rennes in 1944. This woman, her head has been shaved to identify her and punish her for collaborating. And she's in the process of being interrogated before being paraded through the, the streets. Lee's feelings about... Germans and the Nazis were very clear, very strong at this point in time. She wrote about her thoughts about this particular scene that she came along. But the empathy and emotion which she captures in that single image doesn't need any words to explain. The woman's position is clear. You see it with a mixture of sympathy and sadness that it should come to this. This episode is presented by me, Amy Buhesen, co-director of Farley's House and Gallery Limited, which managed the Lee Miller archives. Our guest was Hilary Roberts, head curator of the Imperial War Museum's London.
and it was produced by Tolly Robinson. The soundtrack was licensed from Dwarf Music, and the copyright is Lee Miller Archives 2021, all rights reserved. The series is made possible from public funding from the DCMS Culture Recovery Fund, which was awarded to us by the Arts Council England.